This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio, and I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show and Happy New Year's Eve. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different, a kind of end of the year wrap up of some of the best advice we've gotten from our guests on Just Something About Her so far. These are women who've been through the ringer, made it to the top, and want to share some of the wisdom and perspectives they've collected along the way. Here to help me do that is my producer, Sari Soffer. Sari, have you picked out your winners? I have, and it was really hard. Not only have we had so many great guests on the show, but each one of them came jam-packed with advice. So it was hard to even pick from within the episodes, but I do think I have my winners. All right, let's get to it the top four best pieces of advice we've gotten on just something about her. Let's start with our first piece of advice. My pick is Valerie Jarrett, teaching women or encouraging women to ask for a raise. She's been a longtime mentor to me from when we worked in the White House together for President Obama. Um, We had her on the podcast in early October and she had a great lesson for how to teach women to ask for a raise. Yeah, I mean, I love that part too. It's really stuck with me um, as someone who gets really nervous asking for raises. But I also think it's really important right now during COVID, given the way that it's affecting women in the workplace. I saw the study that one in three mothers is considering quitting or downsizing their workload because of COVID. And a lot of the industries worst affected by the pandemic, like hospitality and retail, childcare, um, there's just more women that work in them. But the real catch is that employers all too often rely on previous wages to set salaries. So lower salaries, we get lower salaries. And time out of the workforce where women can't get pay bumps is really going to hurt them. So it could be a huge setback for women. Yeah. It's almost as if women are operating in a world that was made for men. (laughs) (laughs) Almost as if. I've heard someone say that often. Um, But yeah, so I feel like it is obviously really hard to ask for a raise right now. Everyone's going through a very unstable time. But given that women already make 82 cents to a man's dollar, and that's even worse for women of color, when this is all over, we can't let that number slide. So I feel like Valerie has some really sound advice for how to ask for what you deserve. In this particular part, she is talking about her longtime mentor, Lucille, who she was a lawyer for at City Hall in Chicago. And Lucille gave VJ a lot of other advice, but encouraging her to go ask for a raise was a really formative one. Let's hear how VJ says we should go about it. The thing she did that changed my perspective of my worth is she told me I had to go and ask my chair of the department who was my boss's boss's boss for a double promotion. She says, your boss should work for you. And I like, why would you say that? And she said, I've been working for with you now for a year yeah. and change. And I know your boss used to be my lawyer before you got here. I know what you're doing. I know what she's doing. And she should report to you. I thought that was the most ludicrous thing in the world. Right. Never in my wildest dreams would I think of going into the head of the department and saying, I should get a double promotion. And I ignored her like for weeks. And she kept bringing it up over and over again. And it got to the point, Jen, where I thought I'm disappointing her by not doing ah. it. So let me just get it out of the way. Because okay. God there's forbid a, I should There's disappoint. a button to push. <laughs> you don't want to be a disappointment. <laughs> Can't ever be a disappointment to anybody by any metric. Whatever the metric right. is, you don't want to disappoint. Yeah. So I made an appointment to go in and see him. And I just thought, let me just get this out of the way. And he said, okay. 
I was done. And I remember said, going okay. back to her and saying, Lucille, he said, yes. And she said, isn't that nice? You should have asked months ago. Well, fast forward. I don't know if I told you this, but when I finished the book, I my book, mm-hmm. I gave it to a bunch of people to read. And uh, Michelle Obama's chief of staff, Melissa, said, you know what? That story about you getting that promotion, that just seemed too easy to me. It doesn't really ring true. So I called Lucille. And I called everybody who was in the book, mm-hmm. let them know what I was saying about them in the book. And so I said to Lucille, you know, did you ever say anything to the head of the department before I went in there and asked for that promotion? Mm-hmm. And she laughed and she said, it might have. <laughs> so all these years, Jen, I thought I'd gone in there and made this compelling case and, you know, badass that I was. She just pulled the rug out from underneath that. But what I learned belatedly from that lesson was not only was she my mentor, she was my advocate. She went to bat right. for me when I wasn't in the room. She went and told my boss, this is the lawyer who I think is performing at this level. But she made me go in there and ask for myself. And I realized all those times she kept nudging me. It's because she knew if I asked, I would get it. But I was too afraid of rejection right. to stretch. Well, too afraid of rejection. But then also what I, you know, what I still, what I still to this moment struggle with is um, backlash. They say, well, you know, it never hurts to ask. And I was like, well, I don't know. It might hurt to ask. And asking for a friend, <laughs> what, do you, what do you advise? <laughs> Have you ever met a man who was intimidated to ask for a promotion or to ask for a salary increase? The men I know, the day they start work, they think they should get the next job. And right. they think they're qualified for the next job. And so yeah. why do we feel we have to be more than qualified and have well, I know why we feel up. it, but we shouldn't. But we have to leave that, you know, you have to leave it behind. We have to let that go because that's not what the marketplace does. We're the only ones that are playing by those rules. We're skewing the rules of the marketplace by not advocating. Exactly. Right? We're competing with one arm tied behind our back. Why? And we tied it ourselves. We put it back there. Why would you do We put that? it back there. I mean, a lot of this is we're saying men have to accept us the way we are, but some of it is we have to also define who we are. And as you would say, not play by their rules, but make our own rules. Right. I said this to Lucille, I said, well, gosh, well, what if he says no? And she said, well, then you ask him what it is that you need to do that would make you prepared for the next bump up. And then you go do that. And six months later, you go back and ask again. And again, it's, it's this, we take it all so personally. We take it all so personally. And then what I've learned is like, even when you're working closely with somebody, you really don't have a great sense of how they view you. And I think women, we get ourselves all worked up that any kind of reaction from someone we somehow caused, own, and have to fix. And I, I you know, I've thought a lot, but I think at the root of that is we feel that way because you know, we we have been outsiders. We have been trying to fit in. And so we still hold at our gut, like a question about like, do I actually belong here? And I want, I try to identify that so women recognize it and know not to listen to it. Just buying into the notion that you don't actually belong there. And in the absence of real power, we feel like we have to smooth things over because that's what we can do that's as opposed to having real agency. That's the point I was going to make is that we want everyone to be comfortable, ourselves included. And let's face it, it's uncomfortable to advocate for yourself. That's just in our DNA. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Just suffer through the discomfort and do it. And eventually you become more comfortable. And I'm not saying 
Well, that's because you're proof that you can be. Well, and you have to try to do it with some grace and humility. And, you know, I've had people come in and ask me for promotions and some people do it well and some people just irritate you. And so do do it. Do do it well. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be a jackass about it. Don't be a jackass about it. (laughs) And make it easy for the person who you are asking for um, that leg up to give it to you. Like, do have worked hard and prepared yourself and make a good case for why you deserve it. And if the person says no, you do go back and try to let them see your improvements. Right. But recognize that uncomfortableness is healthy in an organization. You can make people feel uncomfortable and they can recover from that. Valerie's story is amazing to me because she, when she first started in the workplace, she was very shy. And I just see her as somebody who has so much presence and command and confidence. But, you know, she made herself that way. Yeah. It's hard for women in general to do that. But the more we do it, the more we normalize it so that like you get over that hump. This is like something that's in our own brains, right? Like that we can like get over this. And it's a service, not just for yourself, but for other women as well. Because when you're not paid what you're worth, that hurts all women. Yep. And then remembering that if you don't get it, don't take it so personally. Get back up, try again. And also, if you can, bring another woman with you because it really is a team effort out here. Okay, what's next? Okay, so speaking of asking for what you want, my pick is Lori Gottlieb, who is a psychotherapist and an author. I read her book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, I think about a year ago, and I really wanted her on the show. So I emailed to ask and she said yes. Living your dream. I wanted to bring her on specifically because obviously this has been a really tough time for everyone during the pandemic. A lot of people are dealing with anxiety, loneliness, grief. And I thought that she might be able to add some perspective on how we can maybe cope on a day-to-day basis, which she did. Yeah, she really delivered. I feel like we believe that anxiety is about the circumstances of a problem and it's really not, right? Like anxiety kind of lives in our state of being and we can either let it control us or we can understand, you know, what it's really about and silence it and try to live in the moment because the moment never comes in your life where there's nothing to worry about. So the trick is figuring out how to enjoy life and be in the moment, even with all of the things that cause you concern. It is really interesting what she says about anxiety. Let's listen to that specific part. I think that in normal times, we have this idea that there are negative feelings and positive feelings. So negative feelings are things like anxiety, things like sadness, things like anger, um, and positive feelings like, you know, joy, right? And I think that people are discovering that your feelings are important. They're like a compass. They, They tell you where to go. They tell you what direction to go. And so if you ignore your anxiety, you can't say to yourself, wait a minute, what is my anxiety telling me about what's not working right now and what I need to do to take care of myself. Same with sadness, right? Even when you're angry, like what's not working in what happened with my child yesterday or what happened with my partner yesterday, um, where I'm still angry about that. And so it gives you a clue as to what direction to go. And if you don't pay attention to your feelings, you're just kind of like walking around aimlessly. You don't really know where to go with it. So, you know, I think that we need to get used to this idea that there's not like negative feelings and positive feelings. And an example of that might be anxiety. So especially during COVID, I talk a lot about the difference between productive anxiety and unproductive anxiety. Productive anxiety is good, healthy anxiety. A lot of us don't even think about the word healthy next to anxiety. (laughs) Yeah. So productive anxiety is 
you are reasonably worried about something and it motivates you to take action to protect yourself. So during COVID, we are reasonably worried about getting the coronavirus. And so we wear masks, we social distance, we do the things we need to do to be safe. If we were not anxious about getting the coronavirus, life would go on as usual and we would make ourselves unsafe and our communities unsafe. So that's productive anxiety. Unproductive anxiety is obsessive rumination. It's checking the headlines all the time. It's Mm -hmm. reading the latest news every hour. And it's worrying about what we call futurizing or catastrophizing. So worrying about something that hasn't yet happened and may never happen. So you're like living in the future in your mind, but it hasn't happened. You know, like, oh no, what's going to happen next week or next month or in three months? Right. And that's not productive because there's nothing that you would be doing differently with this like projection Mm. that you have in your mind with this imaginary thing that might happen later. So I really think it's important that people pay attention to, is this productive anxiety? Is there something I can do in the moment to stay safe? Or is it unproductive where I'm just ruminating and I'm making myself kind of sick? And I think we talk about our physical immune systems and our psychological immune systems. Our physical immune system, of course, we want to keep healthy. Our psychological immune systems it's really important to bolster those so that you stay emotionally healthy too. And checking the headlines and worrying about what's going to happen that hasn't happened, that can really tear away at your psychological immune system. That kind of anxiety where you're projecting into a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, that's something I have in normal life, right? You know, I worked in politics and there's a weird rhythm to that, but I, you know, there were sort of jobs. And then ever since 2016, I've kind of been on my own and had the sort of anxiety about, okay, well, things are fine now, but like, what about a month from now, a year from now, am I going to have trouble, you know, getting work, finding work, or as I say it out loud, it sounds ridiculous, but is there a moment now where, you know, I know you, you tell people, particularly this time, like time of anxiety around COVID to live in the moment that it shouldn't take a pandemic to do this, but is this giving us the skills that we're like sort of forced to do it? We're like forced to live in the moment, just kind of face that, you know, because you you have lost some semblance of control. I feel like I don't have any other option, but to sort of appreciate moment by moment what I have. Do you think that something good can come of it for people in managing anxieties we have day to day, even when things are normal? Yeah. First of all, I think that even in quote unquote normal times that (laughs) control is an illusion to some extent. There are lots of things that we have agency over. So I don't want to imply that we don't have control, but I think a lot of the things we imagine we have control over are actually things that we have less control over than we think we do and vice versa. I think a lot of things that we feel like we don't have control over, we have much more control over, like our response to things, how we respond to things, what we choose to do given our circumstances or the people in our lives. The stories we tell about ourselves. Right. That's something we can control and should have agency over. I think in normal times, people spend a lot of time in their minds, either in the past or the future, but not a lot in the present. So they think about something that happened and they ruminate on that and they regret that, or they imagine doing something different. So they spend a lot of time in the past about, you know, what happened in the past. And they spend a lot of time in the future about what if, but they don't spend enough time in the present. And I think that what people are doing now is saying, wait, I don't have a lot of choice in a good way, meaning I need to spend time in the present. I need to see what that's like. And you've noticed that when you spend time in the present, it doesn't mean that you aren't planning a future. Spending time in the present is setting you up. It sets up the infrastructure for what you want to happen in the future. Yeah, she's still right though. Like we spend a lot of times in the past or the future, but not in the present. 
Yep. You know, and, and maybe coming out of the pandemic, Sarah, like maybe we will have lived through so much anxiety and learned how to deal with it that when life returns to normal, we're better equipped to deal with anxiety and can enjoy life more. I think so, so much. I feel like I've had to come up with a new coping mechanism every single day of like, okay, I am anxious right now and I can't just run off and fill my day with errands. So I have to take a deep breath or go do some yoga. And I hope that we can all take that with us because it's good. Yes, definitely. Wait, Sarah, I just I just thought of one that we didn't have on the list, but we have to play. Which one's that? <laughs> and Helen Peterson, who's the writer that wrote that book, Can't Even, which I love, about millennial burnout. Yep. And you know the coping strategy. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's so good. Um, I'm not going to give too much of a wind up on this one because I don't want to ruin the punchline, but this is Anne Helen Peterson's genius idea on how to set up boundaries to avoid burnout. So that idea that you have to work all the time, that is my coping strategy for that precarity that I've felt since I basically entered the workplace. And since I entered grad school and was like, okay, well, grad school doesn't lead to employment, but some people get employment. So if I just work all the time, maybe that can solve that instability problem. And so that's what so many of us have adopted as a coping strategy. And so I think like always being frantic to not miss an opportunity, that is a symptom of overarching precarity, of overarching instability. And I think for me too, it's it's like, <sighs> I think as women, it's really hard for us to say no. I think we're always yeah. scared of being labeled difficult or... Um, uh, or turn it dry up. Uh-huh. Either one of those uh-huh. things. Yeah. I, you know, the best advice that I have received about handling... your email or your requests and like not and being scared of like being labeled a bitch is that you create an email account and I know that is for your assistant and it's just like an assistant that says no to people for you so you can still email from this email account is the assistant made up yes But your assistant, like a, your assistant just like gives hard no's, protects your, your time, really respects you, like has no problem, like bargaining for more money, (laughs) you know, this is genius. (laughs) But now that I've told you, I can't do it. (laughs) Or if I do ever get an assistant in some fantasy space, people are going to be like, that's not your assistant. That is your your strong boundary enforcing email account. I do love when I listened to this again, when I was like, wait, wait, is this a made up? And she's like, yes, (laughs) (laughs) it's made up. (laughs) All right. It's time for a short break, but stick around because the next guest has advice you will not want to miss. And we're back with our special episode of Just Something About Her, where my producer, Sari Soffer, and I have chosen our favorite advice from guests on the show. So my next pick is Judge Rosemary Aquilina, who was the judge in Michigan that tried Larry Nasser, the gymnast doctor that was convicted of sexual abuse of so many young gymnasts. We had her on a couple of weeks ago on December 17th, and I truly had no idea how powerful this conversation going to be. And that one piece of advice she gave that you and I were both so taken with, again, is to not ask the damn why questions. Yes. (laughs) I've actually thought about it since. 
And it's obviously important for all areas of life, giving advice to friends, family, everyone, but especially in the context of reporting crimes, which we talked about a lot on that episode. The reason that so many women don't report abuse or assault is because of victim blaming. So we ask women, why were you wearing that? And why were you drinking? Why didn't you try to stop him? All of those why questions. It puts women on the defensive immediately. Which is part of the reason that less than a quarter of perpetrators of sexual violence are reported to police. That's a stat I looked up from Rain. And then what's even crazier is that 99.5% of them end up walking free, even if they are reported. But one of the things that they asked some of these women who chose not to report in this specific study was why, another why question, but uh-huh. 13% of the people said that they chose not to report to police because they believed that the police wouldn't do anything. And maybe that's because oftentimes law enforcement do approach with the why question and not like Judge Aquilina does how can I help, which actually empowers the victim to get the outcome that they desire. All right, press play. One of the things that I absolutely hate and I've tried to make my life's career uh, and not be real verbal about it because I have only realized how powerful it is, is to not ask the damn why question. Why needs to retire into science? (laughs) Say more about that. Yeah. Yeah. So think about every human can think about their own life experience from the time they were growing up until they get married and, you know, their husband comes home and says, why did you buy that? Or the mother says, why didn't you do your homework? Why didn't you clean your room? Why immediately shames and blames and it shuts you down. Yeah. And so no one gets the whole story. Think about it. We all have those stories. But when you ask, what would you like me to know? You're actually listening. You're telling the person that you're listening. You're here for them. You're going to partner with whatever it is they need. So what would you like me to know and how can I help has really been my life's mantra. Obviously, in the Nasser case, it became full light. I think people saw it and a number of attorneys and actually judges contacted me and said, geez, I'm going to start using that. It was really in that moment that I thought, I can't possibly be the only one who felt like this or learned to ask this question. Um, but I learned that very early on in my life and in my career. What point did you decide to ask that question in your career? My first job after law school was working for a state senator, and I did a lot of constituent work with a yeah. lot of people who needed help. They couldn't find resources. And then sort of simultaneously with that, I joined the military. And of course, I was the token female. And so all of the minorities, like I would get cornered in the bathroom. And I used to tell my commander, I'm not AWOL. Someone has talked to me in the bathroom or in a corner, in a closet, wherever we could talk because they didn't want to be seen talking to the JAG Uh, officer, right? Right, right. And Uh so to get the story and to really help pull it out, because you can listen to a story for hours and not understand the point. I really learned the value of what would you like me to know and how can I help? Because it gets to the point of why are they approaching me? What do they need? And I'm here to listen and help you, but I need to know, you know, sort of backwards. Start from the end and then tell me. And it just worked so beautifully. And time and time again, commanders told me, the senator told me, how is it you've learned these things when no one else knows them about this human who wouldn't tell, you know, 10 other people who are close to them, but they told you. Yeah. And so I learned how powerful that was. And so I, when I became a judge, I did this with my clients, but when I became a judge from day one, that has been the question that I ask. And I get information that attorneys approach and say, judge, can I approach? And I say, sure. Judge, how did you do that? I've met with them dozens of times and you got information from them that they would never divulge to me. 
and they did it in the public courtroom. I want to pause for a second because I think that that's just good advice in general for people, right? Because particularly if you have a friend or a family member who's in a bad situation, and I think particularly with women, we feel like we have to fix the situation, right? Because that's how we make things all better. That's, I feel like in the lack of real power, that's what women do. But you can't take on everybody's problems or solve everyone's problems. It's not realistic. So to say, what do you want me to know and how can I help? That is giving the person the power to ask for the help they need and letting you know what you can do and let go of the things that you can't do. Right. And I think it also helps empower people because people, and and I'm like this, I don't want you to solve all my problems. I want to be the hero in my story, but sometimes I need help unlocking the door. And I think when you tell people that they can be their hero, they don't even realize that. And then they hear it and then they think, oh, she must think I'm valuable. She thinks I matter because I can do this. And they empower themselves. And really, that's what happened, not just in Nassar, but in thousands of cases that I've heard. And I've watched the outcome. And to me, it's just pretty incredible. To empower someone to be the hero of their own story is probably the most effective thing you can do to actually help someone. It's such good advice. Absolutely. And I also like that she doesn't just say, don't do this. She's like, here's what you do. She gives alternatives to the why question that really help empower the person you're speaking with to be, as she says, be a hero in your own story. It's just pretty incredible. All right, I'm ready for my next piece of advice. Obviously, I had to include Ellen Pau, who was just super impressive. She was the CEO of Reddit, and she had that infamous gender discrimination lawsuit against Kleiner Perkins in the early 2000s. Um, And now she started this nonprofit project, Include, to encourage diversity and inclusion in tech companies. I think it's a, it's a really important conversation right now, especially since more companies are having these conversations and trainings about diversity after the George Floyd protests this summer. And Ellen is a real pioneer. You know, she took on sexual discrimination, sexual harassment in Silicon Valley early on. Uh, she was somebody who was fighting disinformation in Silicon Valley, you know, way before we really appreciated what a big issue that was. In this specific segment that I chose, Ellen's talking about how some of the biggest offenders of not having diversity, which are some of the big tech companies, they only care about their top lines. And that's why they're not as concerned with the ethics behind it all. And that's definitely true. But on Project Include's website, I found this article and it said that companies that are more inclusive of gender show a 15% likelihood of performing better financially and ethnically diverse companies, 35%. So it's like, If you make these changes, your top line will also reflect that, which I thought was interesting. All the research shows this. Who knew? Broaden the perspective of your company by having a more diverse workforce. 100%. And I think this part is really great. She starts with why tech company leaders don't focus their resources on combating hate and harassment, especially online, and then ties it to how that's actually a diversity issue in itself. So it's not so much advice, but it's just a lesson that we should all learn about why diversity is so important on so many levels. So let's listen to what she has to say. You know, if the CEOs were really committed, they could do it because it is not rocket science. And if you are able to tell that a person is interested in buying a blue pair of Nike sneakers at 10 p.m. (laughs) at night, then you can figure out that somebody has done something that's harassing or hateful, right? I mean, the amount of technology, the amount of talent and the amount of dollars they have is, uh, you know, just unimaginable 
it's just a matter of turning it towards a different problem and trying yeah. to solve that problem. But they don't want to solve that problem. If you look at Facebook, you know, my understanding is that most of the employees who are on the content management team are mm-hmm. workers for a third party contractor. Like they don't even work for Facebook. And what company doesn't have like the most important people to them working for them? It just shows that that's not that important to them. They don't need to have them on the Facebook direct payroll and they don't really care that much of what they're doing because it doesn't really matter to them enough to have them be under their direct control. Why don't they want to deal with it? Because it just causes too much controversy. It's not as if they don't get heat for not dealing with the problem they do. They make their money from having all of this hateful content and from having all of this negative engagement. It drives engagement. It drives attention. It keeps people coming back and it makes it possible for them to have this unbelievable amount of growth and this unbelievable amount of wealth that's been generated from it. I mean, maybe it's just naive of me to think that because, you know, Silicon Valley and tech does approach things with so much just sense of egalitarianism that they are so motivated by just making money. But it seems um, sort of undeniable at this point that that's, that's what's happening here. You know, I came into tech the same way you did, where I thought like, well, oh, this is such a great egalitarian industry. It's going to be about giving access to everyone, creating these great ways to communicate and to work and to connect people. And it's going to be this great bridge where people have access to all the world's information and anybody can access it. You don't have to you know, be in certain cities. You don't have to have access to certain universities. You can have that access just from your computer. And then you realize actually the problems are being solved are the problems that frankly, like these wealthy white men have experienced and they don't have a lens outside of that perspective. And all of these other problems are surfacing and they're not solving problems for the person who's living in a geographic area that doesn't have good internet connectivity. They're not solving the problem for the person who can't afford a computer. They're not solving these problems for people who are from different groups that get harassed on the internet because they don't see any of these problems. They don't experience them. And my suspicion is a lot of them don't have friends who are experiencing them. Right. They're in this little bubble where they tell each other everything is going great. Their boards look just like them. Everything is very homogenous. And that group just doesn't experience the internet the same way everybody else does. And for them, it looks like a huge success. They've got a billion people on the internet. They've got money coming in because advertisers are doing it. They've got this massive wealth that's being generated that they're getting the lion's share of. So it feels great. Their company feels successful to them. Why would they want to change to a way that they don't know that much about? They don't understand inclusion. They don't understand these problems. Let's just stick to what they know and keep making money. Right. The white male experience just dictates everything in terms of what we think of baseline experiences and what we think a real problem is. And if a real problem doesn't come into their line of vision, it can be seen as, you know, I feel like it can be seen as sort of frivolous. It's easy for profits to override those kinds of these, the concerns about how something impacts a different community, if it's not impacting the bottom line, or if it's not in their field of vision as an actual problem. Yeah, it's interesting, because I think they do think it's much smaller than it actually is, because they don't hear about that much their friends aren't experiencing it. They haven't experienced it. And it seems like it can't be that bad. I heard that a lot in the beginning of 
when these issues started coming to light. And um, with Gamergate, you heard a lot about like, it can't be that bad as these women were like fleeing their homes and trying to stay safe. Now, I think people are seeing that it's a problem, but there isn't a financial calculation around it. And maybe it will take litigation, maybe like a couple people suing these platforms for not doing enough when they should have known better will drive them to realize that actually there is a cost to it. And now I do need to take care of it. And actually, it's not that expensive. I mean, it's so obvious when you put it that way, right? I think um, what we can take away from that is just to feel empowered to speak up when we see workplaces becoming too homogenous. And especially if you have hiring power to keep an eye out for that. Also, to circle back to Valerie Jarrett's advice in the beginning, it might be uncomfortable to advocate for yourself and others, but we need to get comfortable with that discomfort because it's just almost always worth it to make sure that no one feels underrepresented or obviously harassed. So I think um, that it is not just a lesson, but advice in the end. All right, let's take some time to reflect on that and play some ads. And we're back with my producer, Sari Soffer. Sari and I have put together a list of our favorite advice from guests on the show for the special end of year episode. Okay, Jen, are you ready for this? I'm going to do a little surprise one oh, where I think okay. you gave some really good what? advice. <laughs> Sometimes you do that. Okay, so it was from the Sarah Cooper episode, and it was a really relatable moment. Sarah Cooper is a comedian. She just came out with her Netflix special, and she was feeling really insecure about the whole thing. She tweeted about her imposter syndrome, I believe it was. Yes. Do you remember this? Yes, it was nuts. You were like, hey, Sarah. What's going on here? Like, why do you feel as if you are not worthy? And the message you gave was basically like, look at the facts in your life. You have had so much success with such little resources. She became most famous during the pandemic, something you mentioned. And you just gave her what I thought was an incredible pump up speech that all women need to hear because we do carry a lot of imposter syndrome and we need to shed that. So yeah, that episode also notably, we recorded it right before the election. It published right after the election. So there was a lot of emotions right there. Uh, that I was a hot mess that week. I mean, looking yeah. back on it now, like I was just a bundle of nerves. I know. I'm going to play that for you. I did note yesterday on Twitter, you had a tweet about the imposter syndrome, which is something mm-hmm. I think a lot about or write a lot about. You said that my imposter syndrome is so good, it shuts down positive thoughts I have about myself before I even have them. What, what's going on here? What is that about? <laughs> like, what is like, it's like, I just had a hugely successful Netflix show come out two days ago. And let me tweet about this imposter syndrome that I have no positive thoughts about myself. You know, the tweet that I almost tweeted before that was that I don't know why reading bad reviews is so much more fun than reading good reviews. Oh, shit. You're reading reviews. I mean, I haven't learned the lesson. I'm new to this stuff. Like, I I know that I'm not supposed to read the reviews. No, you're not supposed to read them. (laughs) But the good ones, I'm like, it's so weird. I'll read the good ones and they'll be like, this was so funny, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, great, great. Okay. But then I read the bad ones and I devour them. I devour every (laughs) negative thing that is said about me. Like no talent, like awful mess, bad writing, couldn't hold her own with all of these stars, like all of this bad stuff. And I (laughs) devour it because there's a part of me that's like, it's true. It's true. 
I'm terrible. You know what I mean? And I want the part of me that's like, wants to like feel validated that I'm right. I'm terrible. I want someone to tell me I'm terrible so that I can like validate it. And so like, like, I can't have a positive thought about myself because I don't even let myself have that positive thought for it to get shot down. Like I don't even go there. I'm I'm just thinking the negative things, you know? Do you feel like you're under a lot of pressure, a lot of expectations? Yeah, I do feel like I'm under pressure because I'm yeah. like, I'm, I'm 42. I don't feel like I have a lot of time. <laughs> I feel oh, like shit. I'm like, I got to like make things. I got to like, I don't, I just feel like this sense of like urgency. And so like, if people didn't like it, then what if I don't get to make another one? You know, what if I don't get to, because I have all these other ideas I want to do, you know, I just, so I feel, I do feel that, that kind of pressure, like, oh, I don't want to be a failure publicly. Like, yeah, that, that sucks. But it's also just the opportunity. I don't want to waste this opportunity. I don't want to like, in a year, be like, oh, I was in a scene with Helen Mirren. And now I, you know, no one will answer my calls because I suck. You know, I, yes, I don't want to get to that point. You know, I mean, I totally understand what you're saying. But it's also nuts that you feel that way. (laughs) You know, we got to talk a few months ago, it was probably May, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was when, you know, like your TikTok Trump videos had definitely taken off and you were like a thing, but it was like before Netflix. But what I saw at that time, Sarah, is it's like, wow, you know, we are in a pandemic. Everything is shut down. People don't know how to be funny. Nothing makes sense anymore. And you find a way to break through and hugely, wildly successfully from your home on your phone. And you think that a year from now, you're not going to be able to find a way to continue to make art in the world. Let me just remind you, you are this a is, black this woman. Feels good. Yeah. <laughs> I like this. this is my, you this are my favorite a, podcast. You're not even just a black woman. You're a black immigrant woman who's started in tech, which is the, I mean, um, God love the people, but it's a little broy. Mm-hmm. Got out of it, found a way to, you know, write a book to translate that into stand up shows and then to actually not just make us laugh in the pandemic, but take on the foe, the enemy of the pandemic, the one that's making it worse than it needs to be and holding him accountable in a way that's so powerful. We can't even describe why we love it so much. And then you go in the middle of the pandemic (laughs) and actually create a show (laughs) in the middle of this pandemic with Helen Mirren playing Billy Bush. And you think that you can't keep that going. You are going to keep that going. Here's what we know about you. You always find a way to make your voice matter. Now you're going to make me cry. That's the history of Sarah Cooper. Oh, thank you. And like any good pep talk, this is also a pep talk for me. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, it's a little scary now because we're both entering a new phase. Everyone listening is going to be entering a new phase. And you have to have the assurance that what got us this far, it's going to keep you going. I understand. Panic is like, ah, panic, but it's not real. It's just the panic. Yeah. You know you're going to continue to do amazing stuff. Thank you so much. That means a lot. (laughs) That actually does mean a lot. It's so funny the way that, like, the generalities are, it's one thing, but then hearing that, you know, you're right. I mean, there's a, there's a, you know. The litany, right. It's ridiculous that after accomplishing what she did in a pandemic using her damn phone and nothing else. (laughs) that she doubts her ability to be successful going forward. And I have had to train myself, you know, to get out of that kind of mindset. Cause it's like, look at everything you've already done in your life. Of course, it's not going to stop now. 
damn imposter syndrome. I think I mentioned this before to you, Jen, but if reminding yourself of everything you've accomplished doesn't do it for you, the power stance really works. So it's basically standing like Wonder Woman in the mirror for 30 seconds and you feel immediately more confident. Yes, definitely. One of my coworkers, Stephanie, actually told me she did the power stance before asking for a raise once and got way more than she expected. So that's proof enough for me. But Jen, yeah, wow, we've had some really great conversations on here. It's amazing. I mean, seriously. This was fun. This is super fun. Okay, everyone, this is my job as the producer. If you like that advice, there's more where that came from. You can get all of our episodes of Just Something About Her wherever you get your podcasts. And we promise even more wisdom from our guests. Happy holidays, everyone. We'll be back in 2021 with some exciting new stuff for you. We're talking big guests, big questions, and even more fun. See you then. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcasts app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Allie Rogers is our associate producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro-Roussel is our executive producer. 